the state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era, or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway, and up in the hills and getting down in the hollow. So raise a glass of sippin' whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made up by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. I was really curious to learn why you picked this guy. Because, oh, yeah, that's a great question. Because definitely... You know, hadn't heard of him. You forbid me to do any research, although I had already started down that path because I'm intimidated. <laughs> I'm like, I got to go brush up. And I sure. learned I learned just the high notes about the guy. You okay. know, a um, couple hits, well-respected, dies tragically, but couldn't really hear it in the music. And so it's interesting for you to say that, you know, you weren't blown away by it. Yep. The story, the mythology around this seems to be much more interesting than the music that was produced. But but at the same time... But that's pretty rock and roll, though. It's pretty rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, it's a great point because a lot of those personalities are much bigger than the music that was left behind. But but for its time, it's hard for me to get a real perspective on what that music meant at that time. It's new. It's fresh. It's on fresh ears. Right. And, yeah. uh, and so it's making a different impact than I can appreciate with like my current sort of music knowledge, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting story. I mean, it's, uh, I'm starting to understand why this guy, not, not necessarily why he's so revered by musicians and just in general, but I'm starting to understand why this story's more interesting than, you know, he accidentally killed himself. Kind right, of thing. right, 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 right. Yeah. So, so before well, we- You're mad at my spoilers and he says that. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I put oh, it- We're, we're all- <laughs> yeah, yeah. None of this shit's gonna be in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, put, I put it in the title, okay? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but you- Yeah, well, okay, so we'll redefine suicide uh, later. Yeah. Accidental suicide. <laughs> well, then, then that becomes, that's, okay. It's yeah. a mystery, people. It's a murder mystery. <laughs> suicide. True crime. People, it's a true crime podcast. It's going to number one. All right. Yeah. Yeah. We know that's hot. So so before we get to Casey, I think it's really important because I sent this to Seth and he obviously did some research immediately. And then I thought about it and I said, hey man, just like, don't do, do so much research. I want you to sort of discover this, you know, with us. And he's like, dude, this is way out of my depth. Right? It absolutely is. I mean, yeah. even just the genre of music, right. all of it is- right. uh, and I thought that was a really interesting uh, confession because it, it's not out of my depth and what I like and what I'm interested in. But the point is, is that we're discovering, uh, you know, something we didn't know essentially about our own culture, meaning mm -hmm. Tennessee culture, rock and roll culture, sure. right? Human American culture, right? And so that was the point. It wasn't that, you know, I was going to say, hey, you need to be an expert in transitional R&B on, you know, on the trip to whites co-opting rock and roll in the mid-1950s. It's let's talk about something that is really fascinating and it pulls on all these strings of things that we didn't necessarily know about. And as musicians and music fans and people who make music, like why is that 
why why don't we know this? Yeah. Right? Like when you go to Memphis, his picture should be spray paint, painted on a mural on the wall on the south side. Like it that simple, right? Like mm-hmm. but it's not and you don't know who he is. Yeah. Right. So BB Kings has hundreds of little paintings on their wall. And now I'm starting to wonder if he was one of them because there's a lot of people yeah. I never heard of, and I didn't hear about this guy until you pointed him out. Yeah. But obviously he would have been important but specifically important to bb king right exactly so now i have to wonder if the people at bb king's corporation knew enough to have his face painted to be put alongside all the other people that were bb's uh cohorts so when do you play again uh, as of right now, fall? never. Okay. <laughs> so, so they he, book us again. His limited engagement Monday <laughs> afternoons is finished at the BB King restaurant in downtown Nashville. This is no longer a plug. <laughs> <laughs> but this, is you, a, this is a plea. <laughs> yeah, this is a plea. Yeah, yeah. To go on. Please hire us again. Uh, so if you do pick that gig back up. Uh, well, I'm just going to go in there and look. Okay, well, you can do that. So here's an important lesson about Nashville that I think people don't understand. Casey Wood. Uh, I'm looking at the 12 gold and platinum records that he's won right now. His two Grammys over the wall. When you go into these little bars in Nashville and you play for it, uh, and you go see shows for free, you have the world's best musicians. You may not know who they are or why they are. You could see Casey Wood sitting there playing drums. I assume you were playing drums. Yeah. Said, right. Uh, in the middle of a weekday, just for yeah. fun. And I play in a band with guys who uh, every day I find out more and more stuff that they've been a part of that I had no idea. And I'm literally up on stage with them making music. Right. (laughs) And and they're like, well, you know, when I played, when I, when I toured with, you know, um, so-and-so and, and, you know, and then you'll, I'm sitting there thinking, I didn't know this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a cool story, right? Which I like Uh, better because then now I've. Now I, now I think about what I'm playing. And they're playing the, the <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Make sure you're on time. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Like, uh, you toured with Van Morrison oh, for shit. two years. <laughs> okay, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> playing the the after lunch rush before. Yeah, dinner, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like as like the bar. Well, that's the sobering fat, the awakened, you know, it's like, well, there's four people in here who aren't gonna care. So <laughs> it's three o'clock on a Monday. Who's Van Morrison? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, right. sorry, you can't get your shot of fireball over my drumming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't hear you over the alcohol. <laughs> All right, so that's music. So I, it's fascinating to me, right? And and this story, while brief, is so packed full of like the different pieces uh, of Tennessee blues history, of music history, of of all these things, and like it was really why I picked it was because it was like a huge blind spot, right? Mm-hmm. It would be like if someone said. Hey, there is a lost Stones record that came out of the south of France in 1972 that they were going to release after Exile, and uh, here it is. You're like, well, shit, I got to hear it now, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's going to be amazing, right? Whether it's amazing or not, it would be like, this completely made-up idea, but it's something you would think, like, why hadn't I heard of this? Or yeah. maybe why I hadn't actually listened to Goat's Head Soup, or why I hadn't never heard Motley Crue's first record or some ridiculous sort of thing where you're like, this seems in the pantheon of importance, very high up there. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, why don't I know this? Well, you say it. I mean, he was like, uh, he's the catalyst for a lot of things. Right. 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 Well, I hate to use the term, but you mentioned it earlier. You know, you've got this reappropriation thing and reappropriation happens not just culturally and between races, but it happens in music all the time. And sometimes you don't necessarily see the common thread or what, what caused something to leap from one to the other. 
or or whatever. But obviously, this guy was part of that. I mean, right. he was part of the blues scene. He became the he became what was, if not the one of the first uh, forms of rock and roll from what he had done. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I'm no musicologist, but it seems to me that that that's what makes this interesting. I mean, it, it is fascinating that no one knows who he is. It is fascinating, but that does, that's not really surprising to me because of when this happened and right. what was popular at the time. Sometimes you don't, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You don't really realize, oh, that that really was. There's this, and you know, there's there's these two different musical styles. At some point, there's a you know, if you go back in time, you can see the bridges that you didn't see at the moment in time. And obviously the, the newspapers were ignoring him. Yep. Media was ignoring him. Maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a, re- maybe, you know, maybe people just thought it was a passing phase. Maybe people thought it was just a regional thing. Obviously you said he toured, but so, you know, I'm not surprised I haven't heard of him. My, my question is how many other people like Johnny Ace are out there right. doing this at this same time? Right, you know that we haven't heard of. Maybe he just happens to be the one guy who is fortunate enough to get into a recording studio. Right, right. You know, so this is what's fascinating to me. And I and I'm like I'm with Seth. I didn't know anything about this before you told me about him. I don't know that I know any of these songs. No, you don't. Even though they've been covered by some of the biggest artists of all time, I I didn't even know those versions of well, it. Pledging my love was in a couple movies, right? So it was in Christine. Okay, it, was it rang a bell for me when I heard it. I had yes. heard that one song before. That was it, though. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who it was. I, I hadn't. So I hadn't Stephen King knows who he is. All right. So well, at least the guy. John Carpenter knows who he is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's essentially now we're, we've been this bit, right? But it's, this is sort of the intro, right? This is yeah. the, the basis for what the story becomes. Because you, you, know, you have to take it in chunks. You have to understand how the context is. But to go back a little bit, put it in reverse, right? So John Alexander is out there. He's playing with BB King, Riley King's band. Then becomes BB King. Um, so he he inherits this band just because you got to keep it going. You got to do something, right? You guys have all been in that scenario, right? You don't you don't want to let it go. Uh, and so he needed a stage name because John, whatever his middle name is, Alexander Junior, didn't necessarily have the the jump blues bona fides. Uh, and so they decided to change it, right? Um, so the band obviously was called the Beale Streeters and there's some uh, question over exactly what moniker they used at what time, right? Uh, but he was working with a guy named uh, David James Mattis, who we'll come back to. Uh, and they said, okay, well, what's your name going to be? And he said, call me Johnny Ace because I'm the ace in the hole, right? And his mother, uh, very strict, strict than his preacher father, did not understand gambling, its lexicon, its nomenclatures, et cetera, right? So he was like protecting himself from, or protecting her from him because she didn't want him to know, right? Mm-hmm. So he calls himself Johnny Ace with the understanding that it had kind of a cool name, it does, right? Uh, but his mom wouldn't understand the the inference of it, right? So a little bit of history about Beale Street, I assume my compatriots here have spent some time on Beale Street. Seth, mm-hmm. we've never really talked about this before, have you? I have not. What? Really? I have not. Road trip. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's on the list. All right, so that point, Beale Street <laughs> is similar. Now, the cool thing about Beale Street is that excluding the um, cross streets, which the furthest 
cross street is actually BB King Boulevard. Okay. Right in front of where Gibson was mm. uh, and where FedEx Forum is. Uh, it, the streets are blocked off. So unlike Lower Broadway and Nashville, you can go up, get a beer from a window, and just walk down the street, beer in hand. After five o'clock. After five gotcha. o'clock. Gotcha. Which is actually really cool, right? Mm-hmm. And there's arguments of why we should do that here. So Beale Street, right, <clears throat> has been at the time and still relatively is like the center of black culture in Memphis, in Tennessee, in the South, right? You can make an argument that with the exclusion of Harlem, that it's the most important uh, black center of culture there is, period, right? And some would say it it, it uh, vies for Harlem. And it has always been a black part of town, right? Like since the end of slavery, which I didn't realize. I just assumed it was like the place, but you know, um, because of the way society was, it was black hotels, black restaurants, black dry goods. There's Lansky's was there. You guys know Lansky's? So Lansky, I think it's, that's the word, Lansky's, uh, is uh, where Elvis got all his clothes, right? So think about what Elvis looked like, kind of almost like bowling shirt, you know, with yeah. the, the pleats and the things, right? Now that store is still open and it's in the Peabody, um, which is right next to the Doubletree. So it's like two blocks away. Uh, and some of the clothes look kind of 50 coolish. Mm-hmm. Some of them, like, you know, like Las Vegas clothes mm-hmm. for yeah. dudes? So Elvis goes there and, and he's spending time on Beale, like anybody would, right? You know what I mean? You're an 18, 17 year old kid. You're relatively new to Memphis, up from Mississippi. You're interested in music. You're self-financing demos, mm-hmm. singing for a quarter or whatever it was into this record machine. So he goes and checks out what's going on, right? And he didn't live far from there either. I mean, mm-hmm. the difference between Midtown and there, it's, I mean, like, I don't know, half a mile, a mile, two right. miles, right? So it's not far. And uh, people know Memphis is the home of the blues, right? It's very, uh, there's, and this will definitely be like a whole episode, season, of whether it's the home or the birth of blues. But it's also known as because of W.C. Handy, which to be perfectly frank, I'll say now, I don't know really anything about. He wrote a song. It is, uh, uh, there's the park at the end of the street uh, on B.B. King Boulevard called W.C. Handy Park. So the Beale Shooters at this point, right? B.B. King was in the band. Earl Forrester was on drums. Junior Parker was on harmonica. Bobby Blue was in, then he was out, right? Riley King is there. Johnny Ace on piano, okay? And so the thing about Johnny Ace is that I said all those names. Oh, Roscoe Gordon uh, also played in piano for a little while as well. All of these names I knew except for Johnny Ace. Bobby Blue Band, I didn't know him really, like, but I knew him. Some say, hey, is that a blues guy? I'm like, yeah, man, I heard that guy's name before. Mm-hmm. Obviously, B.B. King, you knew. Uh, Junior Parker was a name. Obviously, I was familiar with. I think like it's one of those things, and so you put all these things together. It's like essentially this is the incubator for a supergroup that went on to go and change the course of American music. And there's like I was uh, taking mm. Roscoe Gordon out. Like I, I still didn't know who Johnny Ace was. Mm-hmm. Like that makes it even more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Like why did BB King become who he was? I mean, really, if you ask Joe on the street, like how many BB King songs could they name? Right. right. Two, maybe, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you asked me to name a Junior Parker song right now, I wouldn't be able to do it by name. Uh, and so that's really fascinating to me, right? So BB, born Riley, uh, then sort of nicknamed Blues Boy, The Blues Boy, and then shortened to BB King. Bobby got drafted, uh, and 
but before that, they were out there playing for five dollars a night and a bowl of chili, right? So five dollars split between five guys, a dollar a night. I don't know what the going rate would be. Obviously, not a lot of money, but they were out there having fun. They went in to Sam Phillips' studio. Casey, what's his studio's name? Son. No, the name of the studio. See, I knew he would fail that test. You, oh, wait, have, you have the goddamn T-shirt, Casey. Memphis Recording Service. Oh. You know yeah, that. You're right. It is on there. It's on your T-shirt. Oh. I have that same T-shirt. Okay, we'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so they went out, and, uh, and Bobby Bland, they cut a couple of tracks at Sam's place uh, that were later released on uh, Duke, and it was Bobby Blue Band, I believe. Uh, backed by the Beale Streeters. Sometimes I wonder Why can't my baby So that was IOU Blues by Bobby Blue Bland and the Beale Streeters, which we're pretty sure has Johnny... Ace on piano. So here we are, right? So things are changing. Times are changing. B.B. King's gone off and has hired 18 people to go and be slick sounding or and tour around the country, right? So the local black radio station, WDIA, B.B. Um, King had a radio show there, right? Like, you know, old-timey like guys, they would just play and do whatever and so bb king had that one so now there was that slot open and so johnny took over that spot so in comes the bahari brothers does that name sound familiar to any of you guys nope no so this is a name that i remember but i would not have been able to do it kind of sounds like a star wars name like oh the bahari brothers i was thinking <laughs> it was a f- fashion of pants like From the you know you mustafa get- system <laughs> <laughs> like khaki these are the Bahari. oh yeah, yeah yeah that kind of sounds like that right <laughs> so the baharis were a group of brothers i think there was two or three or four of them they were founders of modern records in la they were a group of jewish businessmen uh and they had a number of subsidiaries as they do uh one which not yet but was to be based in memphis which would be meteor records which will be a future episode yet to be founded right uh and so at the time and they were out on the hunt looking for artists to develop right i mean almost uh who's the great musicologist uh that discovered all the blues guys i can't believe i'm forgetting oh you're talking about the guy that took the recorder around and yeah yeah yeah. um alan um alan lomax so like essentially everyone was being alan lomax at this time right and so uh or, or hammond right they're out there just trying to discover people and the bahari brothers were doing that even though they were west coasters they felt the need to come to memphis to kind of see what was going on to see if they can find and develop some talent so Aladdin must have, you know, picked up BB King. They must have seen something in that to say, hey, there's other things going on, heard the rumors or whatever. So they make their way to Tennessee. And so they're out here and they've got their music interests and label and pressings and everything out there, right? Uh, And they go on to be a pretty significant story in the history of rock and roll and the transformational aspects of it. And that will be a a different story for a different time. Uh, But they're on the artists, on the lookout for artists to develop. Quick stub, Sam Phillips did the same thing, right? So we think about Sun all the time and how important Sun was, uh, but we forget that 
his primary concern before the formation of the label at the Memphis Recording Studios uh, was to just track records and make money that way, right, transactionally. But he needed to find artists. And so Ike Turner, of all people, was out there driving around the countryside, going to juke joints, going to places, talking to people, and finding and developing artists. So the Baharis were doing the same yeah. thing. So it was... Exactly correct, right? So same idea, like... Man, if I had the scratch, if I just be like, hey guys, you want to go hang out and just go drive around and check out shows wherever the scene is happening and see if we can go develop some artists? Like, fuck this podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to go to work? Yeah. <laughs> In developing unknown artists out of Little Rock, right? No one's unknown anymore. That's true. That's true. All right, so they caught a hold of the Beale Streeters, right? And this is my favorite portion of this part of the story. So they said, okay, something's going on. BB's out there. This is the rest of his band. Let's go ahead and do them. So they arranged for a recording session. Where? The Memphis YMCA. <laughs> Known for its acoustics. <laughs> so, Well, the swimming pool does have some great tile. I've never been in the Memphis Y. I have been to the vast majority of the Middle Tennessee Ys. I am a regular at the Downtown Y. Uh, with all due deference to the staff and the, the members there, all who seem to be wonderful people, uh, it's a particular place. <laughs> it's a. You understand what my implication is? I know it's what you a. Mean. It's a particular. Like every so often, I've got a story that comes out of the Downtown Y. They couldn't find an empty room. They couldn't find a recording studio. They couldn't find a soundstage. They couldn't find... They decide to go and record at the Memphis YMCA. Now, I don't know if this is the downtown one. I've never been there. I don't know what their YMCA is like. I don't know what their scene is. I don't know if it's Midtown, whatever. So they go in there and uh, they produce a couple of tracks by BB and Bobby Blue, right? Uh, Johnny was there. He was only to record one track, right? He's still John Alexander at this point. We haven't gotten to the point where he's changed his name. Uh, and they record one song called Midnight Hours Journey. So essentially, they go in there as a package. They say, hey, you're the group. You guys give me a couple of tracks apiece. Let's work through this, right? And I don't think that's on that CD, right? Um, so they record it. Nothing is stellar in it, right? Uh, so they put it in the can and they sit on it. Uh, I will say this about the Bobby Blue record that we just heard. It was adequate. There was nothing in it that felt... It didn't keep you in from going to smoke a cigarette. It didn't make me want to sit down and like really get into it. It's like, okay, yeah. not bad, not great. Right? Do you agree? Yeah. Right? And so that was one of the ones that were released. So you'd imagine what the stuff before that, that the Bahari Brothers, it was even less interesting. So Johnny records this one song. That's it. It's in the can. They sit on it. No B-side, no anything. They just let it go. Now, this will be released at a later point in time as a split. And so here we are. So they've been out there. They're playing. They're working. Johnny doesn't go home. You know, he's sort of now leading the Beale Streeters. Uh, and in comes a guy named David James Mattis. He was a DJ at WDIA, the local black music station, which alternated between secular and gospel music with the idea at the time that on the hour or whatever that period block is that the blues people would listen to the blues and then they would turn it on with the castle gospel. They're like, peace out and vice versa, right? Yeah. Uh, and interestingly enough, they only broadcast like during the daylight. They would not broadcast at night. Uh, 
I don't know how many wattage it was. I don't know if it was like hmm. WSM where it covered like the entirety of the planet. Or I they don't, just assumed people weren't listening past a certain hour maybe. Right, or, yeah. I mean, once the gospel was off, then everyone went to bed and, <laughs> and that was it, right? So David James Mattis, a white man, I'm not sure what his providence is, but he's a, he's a Memphian. Uh, he is on the radio and he's into it, man. He's a hepcat. He loves music. He loves the records. He's like a nice guy that's really into it. So imagine the guy, you know, right? Maybe he's you, maybe he's me. Maybe he's the guy who's like, this is my scene. I'm into it, man. Things are happening. This is cool. I like it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be more of a part of it than I already am spinning these records and I'm choosing to go all over the, mm -hmm. the country. I want to be a part of this piece, right? So obviously he knows BB because they're on the radio, not at the same time, but you know, together, right? So they go in and say, all right, <clears throat> here we are. Let's go in and try and do something with this band. Because I think they had seen the successes that they had had with, um, with BB and Aladdin. Well, let's try and replicate that with the same group of guys, right? Uh, and... <laughs> So he brings them into the studio. And by the studio, we're talking about the WDIA radio studios. Not the Memphis. Which, interestingly enough, a lot of records records at that time were recorded at radio stations. Mm -hmm. Makes sense, right? They but, had a tape machine and they already had microphones and they already had a mixer. So and it wasn't like they were recording more than one or two mics at a time. So Yeah, right. By mixers, yeah. you mean two line inputs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty sophisticated. So they go in and the band is is working, right? So he's trying to record all these guys. Earl Forrest, he's trying to record Roscoe, he's trying trying to find something. And so the the session was supposed to be for Bobby Blue Bland, right? And he was given uh, some lyrics to practice like three or four days ahead. And they show up and Bobby can't get it right. Like literally just can't can't get it right. Didn't didn't make it happen, but just missed every beat of it. Like didn't know the words, couldn't figure it out, couldn't get down. Well, Bobby was illiterate. Oh. Could not read. <laughs> so here's the singer in the band. Can't read the words in front of him, which you know they can't be particularly sophisticated lyrics, right? He had four days time. I'm sure the other guys in the band had to know that he was illiterate as well. He never bothered to ask anyone to teach me this, the words to the song. So they never worked it out or didn't choose to work it out or maybe thought he would get hip shot it or, or whatever. You know, he's young, he's cocksure. Maybe he was scared, right? There's a, you know. Now they've got the time uh, and Mattis put up like $1,500, which is a lot of money in 1955 money for a radio DJ. I don't know what that number would be, but. That's a car. That's a car. That's, That's a, car. a car. That is a car. Uh, <laughs> to, to record in off hours of the studio. And these guys shit their pants and they just lose it. Mm -hmm. So in the off time, he's trying to figure out what to do. He's, he's dropped this money. He's furious. Like, as you would be. Like, I got all these guys, man. I'm trying to do something. BB King's out there making money for these other guys. Why can't I do this? And uh, by accident, this is like this best piece, right? Johnny's over in the corner, wasting time playing a piano and he starts uh, singing a song. So Bobby at this point, by the way, had recorded for both chess and modern records. So it's not like he was a complete novice. He wasn't a kid off the street. He was out there playing shows. He played in BB's band. He recorded for two of the bigger, you know, blues, independent R&B labels at the time, right? And so A started singing this song, uh, So Long, by Ruth Brown. <laughs> So long 
All right. So he plays this song. It was a hit for Atlantic. Uh, and he's just sitting there sort of working through it. So here he is doing what he does. Mattis sees an opportunity, right? So this is a basic sort of uh, balladier type song. It, and this becomes important later. It's A-A-B-A uh, in terms of the rhyming scheme, right? Mm-hmm. As any ninth grade poetry student would know. And then the, the form was one, six, two, five. On the spot, they said, let's use that. So <laughs> Mattis, not a musician, not a songwriter, just the DJ who was into stuff said, okay, let me rewrite these lyrics on the spot. Johnny changed up the melody. Some would say enough. Legal scholars, maybe at a later point in time, would say they didn't. They called it my song, as generically as you can get it. Though, Syllab- technically, it's <laughs> technically, somebody, else's right? song. <laughs> somebody else's song, right? <laughs> uh, and and they hit record. Okay. So this is the very first Johnny Ace true recording session, right? Not in the stinky YMCA men's room where people are looking for smokes. And they record this song by accident on the fly. Within 15 minutes, a non-songwriter changes the lyrics. Johnny puts his spin on it because he's got a little bit of an offbeat singing style. It uh, does a different phraseology, changes the uh, melody. And then all of a sudden, we have my song. This is My Song by Johnny Ace, his first hit. That you would leave me here in tears Now you're gone and hours seem like years So darling, I sing my song In that same session for my song, I believe, because it is not clear, the B-side was a pretty standard jump blues. It was called Follow the Rule. Uh, and so we'll come back to the rest of that record, but Mattis is this guy. He's, he's this white man. He's the program director at the All Black WDIA, alternating between blues and gospel, right? Uh, his radio name was David James, which sounds kind of way cooler than, than Dave Mattis, right? Uh, and so at this time, he decided to take not just the Beale Streeters, but Johnny under his... Wing. This is when Johnny goes and changed his name from John Alexander to Johnnyus, as we talked. Johnnyus, as we talked about, which makes perfect sense because John Alexander sounds like Jason Alexander, <laughs> which is a different, different sort of connotation. Different uh, blues man. Different. <laughs> he definitely had the blues, right? I am confused here because we made the ace in the whole reference earlier when he was playing with BB King. So he that was his nickname, but he hasn't officially changed his name. Is that what the deal is? So, so you misread. So this is the period in time when they come up with it when he was with the Beale Streeters, right? So yeah. think about it as like a sort of melting pot in which all these guys are here. They're all making records. They're all doing something. He's just the guy on the piano. BB goes off. And then within X period of time, we're talking weeks, months. Okay, all right. So Mattis is this guy and he's a fan. He's he's into it, right? He feels it. And, and there's already stories at this point about white exploitation of black musicians, of just the sleaziness of the music business and that biz, uh, regardless of of, uh, of racial aspects, just the bit. And it's also pretty wide open too, right? Like the 45 record really hadn't made a move. They were still in development at the major labels. Like those record turntables were still mostly 78s. They were moving into multi different speeds. You know, 
but things were changing pretty rapidly, but it was still wide open. It was big business and there was all billboard and cashbox and all of these things. There were still distributors, jukeboxes were really big, but there was uh, this level of uncertainty. Now don't forget too that music at this period in time also really fucking sucked, <laughs> right? So what, so what happened, right? We had Benny Goodman, we had Big Band, we had Jazz, which at the time, pre-war, was literally like 95% of all records sold, which was pretty heavily black at the time too. Don't forget, right? Yeah, Big Spider back and uh, a couple other white guys were out there doing white stuff. Benny Goodman was white, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah right? And and so there were people that yeah, did Glenn it. Miller and guys Glenn like Miller, that. Glenn Miller, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Who's the piano player that I'm not thinking of playing about? Miles Davis. Bill, oh, Bill Evans. Evans. Bill Evans, right? So there were lots of white people doing it. Not lots, a fair amount. Well, Bill Evans is 50s, so you're talking pre-war, not, now you're talking post-war. Okay, so, you're yeah. good, but yeah. we're talking that transition, right? right? Jazz is dying, right? Or and, and we've come off of people coming from the war. There was not a lot of music to be played. There was not a lot of things going on. There's not a lot of live bands playing on the radio, right? There was a lot of cracker-ass, boring white music, Pat Boone covers, you know, things were not really great. So this is this huge piece, right? David Mattis says, hey man, I see this stuff. This is really great. I think this could happen. And I don't think he was thinking as big as Nat King Cole or, you know, Glenn Miller or whatever these other big pieces are, but he definitely sees something happen and he sees the same crew guys. He sees, he sees a void in what kids are listening to. Right, yeah. Because there, there was not, a, if you ask somebody what were the greatest musical moments in between 1945, the end of the war, and 1950, what could you name? It would all be jazz records for me. The Birth of the Cool, 1949. Yeah. yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I couldn't think anything well, else. Or the whole bebop era, but yes. Yeah, 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 yeah right. It would right, be right, jazz. Right. That, that was the deal. And but, kids weren't listening to that. And kids weren't listening to that. That was older music. But jazz at that same token, though, bebop still was, there was some stuff during war that was, you know, like mm -hmm. Birth of the Cool sort of, I don't know my jazz history that well, but it was around that same time, right? Yeah. So, but Birth of the Cool was 49. And then, so then Miles Davis comes in. So that's the only like cool thing going on in music, right? White people had country, right? And there was Hank Williams, there was things going on in there, but there still wasn't a lot of stuff going on, right? Especially at the pop national level. And so Mattis says, hey, let's do this. But he's trying to be fair. He's trying not to be the archetype of exploiting young black kids, right? Uh, so he saw, he cared, he saw that potential, but he obviously was amateur. And this kindness, this sort of paternal aspect of like being way into it and being a fan comes back to bite him in the ass very shortly, right? He saw the potential of B.B. King, saw the start of that career, and he didn't want somebody else to come out of this scene and have his name not attached to it and not be able to ride those coattails. Johnny Ace was that replacement. So he puts up the money. What's big is it, so he spent that $1,500 for the studio. He also went ahead and paid the band union scale, right? So he paid what I assume to be non-union members. You can just guess that mm -hmm. early 20s, 19-year-old kids were not already part of the musician's union. Maybe they were. But he, which was against business practices at the time, turned around and said, hey, guys, we'll just pay you scale for what that is, right? Uh and the recording, much like Sun, was the, there was the recording label, and then there was this, the, the record label, and there was the studio. So Duke was to be the label, and Tri-State Recording was the studio, was the recording concern, even though there was no studio, right? And so Duke essentially was formed to promote and to push Johnny Ace and the Beale Streeters. So he saw it, he said, I'm gonna spend my money. He spent $1,500 just to track, 
which still blows my mind. I could rent a studio today for $1,500 and come out with something that sounds decent, right? Side note. Side note. <laughs> Woodland Studios in 1979 was $120 an hour. When you and I worked there in 1999, 20 years later, it was $120 an hour. Wow. Damn. 1200 bucks a day. It never, the rate theoretically is only ever gone down. Today, if you pay $1,200 a day for a studio, that studio is doing well. Wow. So there you go. I'm kind of stunned by that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's why Seth records at home. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you build your own studio. <laughs> it's also why he's an electronic. You do as many takes as me, you build your own studio. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, this was the vehicle for, for Mattis to develop and, and push uh, Johnny's sound, right? So he liked the idea. He wanted a royal sound. There was already Queen Records out of Memphis, or no, out of... Uh, Cincinnati, right? And the King Records, and I don't know where they were out off the top of my head. So I guess Duke was the large one, like, next step. <laughs> like, was Duchess taken? Like, <laughs> so, like I said before, he stole the logo from uh, the front of the Cadillac, right? Interestingly enough, though, he wasn't the first release. Johnny wasn't the first release. Uh, for whatever reason, it's sort of lost to history. Mattis decides to release uh, a group called the Gospel Travelers. The song was not long enough to fit on one side of a 45. So it was a, you had to flip it over like, like they used to do with 78s. You know, you had to flip them over. Uh, so I guess it's not that out of thing. It's a song about a tornado and it's called God's Chariot. <laughs> <laughs> Gospel Travelers, two-sided 45. So that's, they had a weird number and then they decided to actually number their records like it meant something and they called it R101. So that's the story of the very first Duke Records release. Apparently, it sold a few. How many is unknown. So the next release is My Song by Johnny Ace with a uh, B-side on it that's his. And things start to move, right? We heard that song, our first impressions of the song, there's an out-of-tune piano. And that, like, <laughs> like, I... Why is there an out-of-tune piano in a radio station? <laughs> well, the real question would be, why would there be a tuned piano? <laughs> Who would bother to tune it? Well, here's the, if, they, if they were playing songs live, which they were because there wasn't that much recorded music, right? Maybe they were still playing record. I don't That's the thing is, was some of the songs live or some of it recorded? Well, most of it, it probably was a lot of it was live, but you know, the, the history of the recording studio in America is a lot of them really were radio stations. So, yeah, yeah. I can sing out of tune. I, I play guitar horribly out of tune. Like, it sticks out to me so bad, and it's not well recorded as well. So, I'm going to say that Dave Mattis did not get his uh, money's worth for $1,500 if that's what he... <laughs> now, I don't know if he spent 15 The thing wasn't clear. If that was 1500 just to rent the room and the mics and an engineer, or if that included pressing the first record as well. Right. Some of those radio stations would play the records too. So are you playing for the promotion of having the radio station play the record? I don't know. So this formula worked though, right? Like it became... To the people that had access to it, right? We've all been there putting out indie records. And this is the thing that gets me and makes me feel like a piece of shit was that like they go out there and he presses up, I don't know, however many copies and then goes, okay, well, a whole bunch of people are out there buying it now. Like I know there wasn't a whole lot of media to produce, but 
or to consume, I suppose, but people bought it. Like enough of it. Seth, how many seven inch records do you put out? Total, I don't know. Uh, a couple thousand, I guess, total. No, but I mean, like, how many different seven inch releases, I should say? Oh, uh, three. Three, right? So imagine your first one, all of a sudden, everyone within your immediate sphere that has a ear to the radio, now you've sold, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 5,000. Like, Mm-hmm. That feels good, right? Oh yeah, I'd be. Uh, You'd be stoked. Sure, five thousand yeah. records Success. in the yeah. mid '90s is indie gold. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's right. In, indie gold. Mm-hmm. And and so I mean, I guess it's the same thing. It's just it's just different, right? Just different time. But they found this formula, and so they loved it, right? And they said, "Well, you got a formula. It worked. They sold a few X amount of records. The amount is not really clear. I don't think Mattis recouped his money quite yet. Uh, you know, obviously you had." I would assume still distributors at this point, or you would still, you would started to have distributors as well as the record stores that were pushing it out there, as well as trying to get mechanicals and other royalties. Uh, but they stole this, this structure, right? So it was uh, a schmaltzy ballad where they would take some sort of structure and chord progression that Johnny already knew that he had practiced, right? You practice songs and someone else would write new lyrics and Johnny Ace would come up with a new melody. And now we got a good song. And now we got a small TA side and turn around and do, do the same thing for the boys and have an up-tempo te- uh, up jump blues for the B-side. I guess it works. How many times have you stolen a song, Casey? Stolen a song? Yeah, how many times have you taken a chord structure and a melody and then reworked it and put it, uh, put it down? Well, I'm not a songwriter, so Clearly. not very many. <laughs> <laughs> I've accidentally done it a few times. Have you? Well, you know, you realize after the fact that you've aped something that was just well, rattling around in yeah. your head, you know. And chord structures are really kind of uniform. I mean, that chord structures are what make Western music what Western music is. Every chord has a function. Okay. So to steal a chord f- structure is really not an issue. It's your melody and your lyric, right? So. And But the melody important is, like, if you barely change the melody. So do you think that George Harrison is guilty of accidentally stealing my sweet lord from was it the crystals you know that's a that's one of those gray area things podcast so. season four episode three <laughs> will a be the two yeah. we'll get to the beatles that's the 60s we're about a decade and a half away so pause we <laughs> actually 70s. we will get to the beatles very few people know this the beatles have a huge body of work in the state of tennessee that's called a teaser that's a yeah, teaser we've talked about that and we that's have a- most people don't know that. Yep. We do. Maybe I'll get invited back. You will. You will. <laughs> so they're, it's essentially a tin pen alley. They're just churning out stuff, trying to get product out. They're working on stuff. And uh, they then go and say, all right, we're going to do the same bit in this same session. And they record two Earl Forrester tracks, a song called Baby Baby and Rock the Bottle, which I actually remember the song Rock the Bottle, that ends up being the Duke 103 release. So the Gospel Travelers, song about God's chariots and the, and the hurricane, no, the tornado becomes uh, the first record. The second one is the Johnny Ace track, my song, and the third one is Earl Forrest, uh, Duke's 103. But essentially the Earl Forrest and the Johnny Ace is the same crew, different frontman. So these records were pretty big hits, obviously with extremely limited distribution. It's like how far can you drive a truck in one day and how many radio stations could you go and talk to you and how many different record stores can you go, right? It's just the general limits of what it looked like. 
So these records are out there killing it. Roscoe Gordon, the other guy, is the fourth regional hit. So they've got four records on Duke. And they're all doing release within the same time. And they're all doing reasonably well, right? And here comes the crux of the scenario. Mattis can't get paid. So he goes out there and they're selling all these records. And I don't know if he's selling them directly to the stores or through a distributor, right? The records were pressed, shipped, sold. They're at the stores. The radio stations are playing them. The, the people are actually demanding more. They want more of these records. He doesn't have enough scratch because he's a DJ to turn around and press more records. He doesn't own a plant, right? And I don't know where he was getting impressed. He then goes to the distributors and or stores and or royalties, even though half these songs weren't actually copyrighted, which still blows my mind, <laughs> and says, hey, pay me. You guys sold a couple hundred copies or a couple thousand copies of this, a couple hundred copies of this. I need my money back. And everyone's like, yeah, no, we're <laughs> not going to pay you. Right, So he finds that even though he has four hits, four selling records, he couldn't get compensated because the industry, the people decided, no, what are you going to do? I mean, is it a no contract situation? I mean, is it what? It's the Wild West. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, put yourself in, in his shoes, right? If you sold 500 copies of the next financier record immediately within two weeks and you have no money to begin with and you put everything you had into it and you're like, okay, well now you guys owe me, let's say $5,000 and you try to go around to collect. So let me turn around the people who are banging for it. You know, 5,000 financier wrong, fans can't be wrong. Like let's, let's make this happen. And they're like, well, what are you going to do now? You, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, make I, me. Yeah. Well, those record stores, who knows? Maybe those record stores were doing the thing where they, you know, they, they, they only pay out every three months or whatever, you know? And it's yeah. like, he needs the money now. He needs the money now. Right, yeah, who knows? You're right. The standard PO invoicing could be 30 days, 90 days, whatever. So but the point is, Mattis is here. He's in debt. He put all this money out. He has a stable of acts that are producing, that have hits. People want them. He can't afford to produce any of our product, can't afford to repress it. His partner, the guy who sort of helped him move it, right, and his he's minor in this story, uh, introduces him to a gentleman named Don Roby out of Houston, Texas. And if this story has a villain, excluding Johnny himself, <laughs> God bless Johnny, God rest his soul, uh, Don Roby may be it. And it's almost a little too easy to villainize him. He has some pretty lecherous characteristics, but he was also a hustler, both literally and figuratively. But it also, if it wasn't for Don Roby, we would have not even heard of Johnny Ace at all, probably. Uh, so his capacity and skill set are really what brought Johnny and this whole team and crew of people to success, right? So Mattis goes down to Houston. He was promised a flight, which I didn't really think about it at the time, but it was like, that's a big deal to fly commercially in 1950, blah, 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 mm -hmm. right? Uh, to, yeah. Right? Well... That doesn't happen. He got picked up by a car in Memphis. He drove 700 miles down to Texas overnight. Roby was already running Peacock Records out of Houston. Uh, Tiny Label had a small record pressing plant. Four presses, nothing major, right? And they try to go strike a deal. What can we do? Now, interestingly, Dot Records out of Gallatin, which non-Nashvillians, it's just right outside of Nashville, offered to help him out. He, but he had just gotten back from Texas 
And he said, I already kind of struck a deal with this guy, Roby, out of Houston. It's not inked. I don't know. Man, I, I think I need to lead with him. Let's see where this goes. Dot says, hey, man, I'm here for you. Let's work through that. Dot, 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 dot. <laughs> Dot. <laughs> Not dot. <laughs> <laughs> Not dot. <clears throat> Next chapter. 